Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, Ray, if you can go ahead and throw the slides up, because I'm going to start there, and then we'll jump into the text. So today, I'm filling in for James again, and theoretically, according to my notes, we'll see if we actually get there, we're going to finish Nehemiah. James has a couple lessons he wants to do that will actually wrap up through the rest of the month, but in theory, we should finish the text today. We'll see if reality matches theory. Um, Before we get started, though, I wanted to spend a little time just kind of reminding us where we are and putting a few things in... um, context again, because both last week and with what we're going to look at this week, we did an awful lot of talking about where things were happening. They were here, they were there, specifically in the city. So before we jump all the way to the city, I thought we'd start by looking at, you know, just a reminder that we're here in, you know, this is in the Persian Empire. Now this map is from, I think, 400 BC, so we're not quite that far yet, but we're pretty close. Um, So the Persian Empire is dominating a huge portion of the world of what today would be everything from Turkey all the way to basically India, you know, and this is a time period where you still have the Celts up in northern Europe and and France and all the way over to the Germanic tribes, so today when you hear Celts, what do you think? At least me, Ireland, Scotland, you think places like that, but the Celts, I mean, so this is before Julius Caesar uh, created his own little holocaust and ran them all out of mainland continental Europe. Um, But that's where we are. The Ethiopians are still down here. You know, that's something we hear about the Ethiopian eunuch and we think about where he's from. Um, This is an empire that's going to be growing over the next 400 years that's going to happen. But we're up in this area. So we're here in the Persian Empire and we're down here specifically in Jerusalem. So if you remember in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is distraught because the city of God, Jerusalem, the gates are broken down, which means they're exposed and vulnerable. Ezra's already gone back. The temple has been rebuilt. The gates around the temple are there, but the city itself is still in distress. And why would the Persian kings care? Well, look at their empire. Look at where Jerusalem sits. And if you know anything about the history of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, their ambitions lied a lot up this river that happens to flow through Egypt. Down here towards the the Kush and the Ethiopians. So Jerusalem, being a strong city, well, that would be a good thing, based on their political ambitions. And sure, they could want some nice places here, but let's remember what most of modern Saudi Arabia is. It's desert, it's hard to cross, and the only reason people are there is largely because they're, they're nomads. So there's lots of reasons for the king, you know, just purely from a political point of view, to be interested in saying, hey, you know what, you want to leave over here from Susa? where you were, and you want to come over here and make this a great city, having a great, strong city in that area, not necessarily a bad deal. When we think Jerusalem, I'm guessing, if you're like me, this is the map you think of, is the map that, at least in my Bible, you flip to in the back, right, and you go look at it, and it's the one that's Jerusalem, what it looked like in the first century, in the time of Jesus. But we're not there yet. We're back in an earlier time. We're still hundreds of years before we get to this point. And importantly, I think we need to realize that 
a lot of this happens later. And a lot of it gets better. Because like in, in Bruce's class on Revelations, he was going to think about where's the ark. And he was showing some great pictures of modern Jerusalem and what's there. And this is a city that is built layer on layer on layer on layer on layer on layer on layer. And you look at it today and things that used to be huge walls are now, you got to dig down to find them. Right? So a lot's changed. And I've never been there. So it's just what I've seen in pictures and looked at stuff. But as we look at this, a couple things I want to point out that we should think about real quick is notice where these, these valleys are. There's the Kidron Valley on the east side. You've got the Hinnom Valley kind of to the south. The reason those are important is let's look at what this looked like closer to the time frame we're discussing, right? So if we go back a little bit, here we've got the same Kildron Valley on the east side. We've got the Hinnom Valley to the south. I like this map because it does a nice job of showing the central valley kind of coming up here through the center. But this little area at the red, if you look at our key up there, that's what David built. That's where David started. So that's the walled city where you begin. His son expands up here and we get the temple on Temple Mount. But we're talking about this little piece. These lines are basically some of the the present day wall boundaries and things that, you know, exist now. But we're talking about just this area. Again, this high place between these two valleys. You go a little later, you get over here into the late monarchy. And yes, this has expanded. It's a bit more unified. There's some stuff here in probably the 8th century that was expanded. And one of the things I really like about some of these maps, especially the previous one in these, is uh, they're willing to put question marks on it. These are where we believe these things are. This is where we assume they are. Some of these are traditional locations, places that have just always been considered where they are. But I like the fact that they're willing to put question marks for some of these locations. This is the closest map I could find to what we're talking about in Nehemiah. What the city looked like when Nehemiah was there. Nehemiah was there to build walls. He was there to build walls around the city. He was there to replace gates. I'll be honest, this is the only one I could find that was specifically attempting to address, you know, in my very exhaustive Google search, Glenn, that was attempting to address, um, well, that's not entirely true because these came from Baker's Bible Atlas. If y'all have never seen that, that's an awesome book. And there's not as many maps as you would think. It's a lot of good geography. Geography isn't just maps. You're welcome, Lindsay. Um, my wife's a geographer. Geography is not just maps. Um, this was the best one I could find. I will admit there's some things I'm not a huge fan about. I can kind of see the same valley. There's the Hinnom Valley to the south. We've got the Kildren Valley over here on the east. It doesn't show the central valley very well. And we know that between this map which still shows that same valley. And this one, there's a lot of expansion kind of on the west side of the city um, where the new areas were. Exactly when that happened, I don't know the history as much to be able to get into it. This is the one we're going to use. This one, what jumped out at me, Glenn, is when I look at this and I see these nice defined walls and I see things labeled as aqueducts. This is first century. Who showed up by the first century? Who are they dealing with in Jerusalem by the first century? This isn't a trick question. Who's politically in charge in the first century in Jerusalem? The Romans. What were the Romans known for? Other than conquering stuff, they did a lot of building stuff. And if they had to, they'd build stuff to conquer stuff. There's some great stories of them building huge ramps to get the walled cities on top of hills. I believe Glenn did a whole lesson on that. I saw that somewhere. I think it was a lesson Glenn did. Um, But we'll use this, because this is where we are. And the text we're looking at here... In 11 and 12, there's a lot going on. Um, There's a number of things going on. 
But I thought it would be helpful to put some of this in context because we just had, let's remember in 9 and 10, we just had a rededication. We had a reading that was going on. And in preparing, I ran across a passage. I was looking in um, Haley's Bible Handbook and I ran across a passage that I wanted to read because it was true when this was written. Let's see, when was that printed? When was Haley's Bible Handbook first printed? I know the third edition came out, or the third printing was like in 1964. And that's by the time they got around to the third printing. But in the section talking about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, there's this paragraph. It was the finding of the book of the law that brought Josiah's great reformation. We read about that in 2 Kings 22. It was Martin Luther's finding of a Bible that made the that made the Protestant Reformation and brought religious liberty to our modern world. The weakness of present-day Protestantism is in neglect of the Bible which it professes to follow. The grand need of today's pulpit is simply expository preaching. Having grown up in denominations, that is absolutely true. That being said, let's look at the text. We're in chapter 11. The people dwelling in Jerusalem. So, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So, I guess the first question we should ask is, is why are they doing this? Um, why are they casting lots and choosing people? I think it probably makes sense, given Ezra's return, restoration of the temple worship, given Nehemiah coming back. Nehemiah is now also the governor on behalf of the king. I think it probably makes sense to all of us logically as to why the rulers are living in Jerusalem. Right? That's the city. That's also where the temple is. So it makes sense. They want the people to look to Jerusalem both spiritually and, in this case, politically. Even though they don't have their own king anymore, there's other people that are in charge there, but that's still the, the power seat of the area. So the first question, and we're going to answer this, I think, a little bit as we go through the rest of 11, is why are they worried about having people living in this city? Verse 3. These are the heads of the providence who dwelt in Jerusalem. But the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession and their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nephilim, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. Okay, so three and four start with this kind of general description of, hey, there's a lot of people that are living here. Most of them are staying out in their cities in the area. And now second half of four. The children of Judah, Athaniah, the son of, 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 Perez, and Messiah, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. So we have two people that are actually named here. I had to go through and highlight because it takes a little bit to keep up with this because they're naming a person and then they're giving a long list of the family and then they're naming a person and they're giving a long list of the family. It's not each one of these people who's dwelling there. And when we get to six, 
All of the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Perez is interesting as a name as to why it's mentioned or why they would go back there. This is one of the twins of Tamar. So this is an important family um, that has a lot of connections uh, in the history of the Israelites. So that's probably why um, they take the lineage all the way back that far here specifically. But we read in verse 6 that there are 468 valiant men. There's a lot of places in the Old Testament you'll read about valiant men. It's interesting, if you go look at the Hebrew word, it's not most commonly translated valiant. The most common way that it gets translated, at least singular way, in fact, it's translated 56 times as army. Men of valor, 37 times. Host, 29 times. Forces, 14. Valiant, as we see here, only 13 times. It's also used as strength, riches, wealth, power, substance, mighty, strong. And there's a few other ones that are used kind of singularly. So the people are glad that these folks are staying. And then we're particularly told, the first ones that are called out, we're going to get into the Levites, we're going to get into the priests, we're going to get into the others. But the very first people in this list that we're told who are living there, are these valiant men. If you remember everything that they were going through that got them to this point, I think that makes sense. When they were building that wall, how were they doing it? Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, took leisurely weekends, did what they want. Now, if you recall, it's only a few chapters ago They're building with watches day and night. They have their swords on their side while they're restoring these gates and these walls. And the whole reason they need the gates and the walls? Well, even Sam Ballot and his buddies are actively threatening Nehemiah the whole time he's trying to rebuild the place. Right? So it's a somewhat less than hospitable environment that they're dealing with to begin with. So walls are great. Gates are great. But if all it takes is the enemy to show back up and break them down, they haven't done you any good. You bought peace for a week, but give it a year and you'll be back in the same position. You know, David had valiant men. That's part of what made his sin with Bathsheba so horrible was that this was not only the the sexual sin that was committed, but, you know, this was the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his valiant men that he then basically had killed. There's a whole rabbit hole we can go down, I won't, (laughs) on just the concept of valiant men, because we see in the Israelites, they understand their importance and their need for them. We kind of understand that as a society today, even though we, let's face it, are pretty far removed in 2023 from the type of society that they were living at in Jerusalem. We think of valiant men today, we think of, what, I guess people in the military? We think of 
perhaps police officers. Well, that's the jobs these men were doing. They were the keepers of the peace. And a society needs those people. There's plenty of people that say, oh, that's not my job. And it's always kind of bugged me when I heard people say, well, that's not the job of a Christian. Because I think that's probably where we need Christians the most. Remember the definition of meek doesn't mean weak. And the stronger you are, the more you can stand up for those who are weak. I heard a story, and I saw the clip. Um, I assume you've probably at least heard of who Joe Rogan is. Every now and then he'll have a guest that's kind of interesting. He's, I don't agree with him on plenty of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I will say I can admire about the man is I've heard him actually use the phrase in public these days, which is almost impossible, Glenn. I haven't thought of that. I'd have to go look into that. Or, well, I used to think that, but once I started looking into it, I changed my mind. And I didn't realize till recently there was actually an incident when he was a host on, I don't know, what was he a host of? Was he Survivor or something like that? It was one of these, like, fake reality shows. And... Um, I guess they had couples or something that were competing, and one of the couples started to get into a a fight. And the guy, I mean, they were like in a shouting match. And at one point, I guess they were going to lose. I don't know what the deal was. But one of the guys got so mad that he started to take a swing at the lady. And the next thing he knew, Rogan had him in an arm bar. What they didn't know is this guy used to compete in Taekwondo and now does Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he's a, what I think you could use the definition here from, from that point of view, He was a valiant man. He was a mighty man. And the reason he could step up for her was he's like, I could take this jump, no problem. He didn't want to. He wasn't looking for a fight. But he was able to step up for that because it wasn't going to happen, at least not in front of him. Right? And it's an amazing clip. Cameras are rolling. He didn't care. All of a sudden, this guy's basically asking for forgiveness or his arm's going to break. People were happy that the valiant men were there because they were needed. And every society needs them, including us. And what makes us disgusted about things like what just happened in Memphis is because that was the opposite of what we expect of our valiant men. And we've belittled that to a point where I fear will come a day where if you don't have strong men, Glenn, you end up with weak men. And weak men build a society that makes you think of people like, well, people that are basically bullies and tyrants. That's how you end up with a Hitler. You have a weak leader. But he wants to exert a lot of power. What you want are powerful leaders who know who they are and what they stand for and have it under control. Which, I may not agree with most of what comes out of his mouth, I think is probably what was demonstrated more by Joe Rogan in that case. Seven, or we're not going to get done. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. Eight, and after him, Gabi and Sali. 928. Joel, the son of Zerkai. Was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Salua, was the second over the city. So we have these who are listed that are from Judah. Now we have 
sons of Benjamin. We have another 930 who are listed. In modern terms, we're talking almost 52 platoons. That's a lot of people. I mean, we basically have a listing here of almost 1,400 people and their, sorry, their commanders and those who are in charge. So they've put a, a non-trivial group together to defend and keep peace in that. In verse 10, we kind of move into some of these other roles where we find people who are staying as well. Of the priest. Jediah. Shariah. We get down to the end of verse 11. And we realize that this was the leader of the house of God. 12. Their brethren who did the work in the house were 800 and 22. And Adiah, the son of Jerome, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, we get to 13, and his brethren, heads of the father's houses, were 242. We get to Amashiah and his lineage, and in 14 we read, and their brethren, mighty men of valor, were 128. <laughs> So here we have another case where we have 822 who did the work in the house. We have 242 who were the heads of their father's houses. And then we have another 128 again described as mighty men of valor. And their leader who was the sons of one of those great men. Now since these are grouped down with the priest, I'm sure James or someone who's more knowledgeable of this time period in the culture of Israelites as a whole would know for sure, but it would, it would seem to imply that these 128 were probably the specific men charged with the guarding at the temple itself. Then we get to 15. Also of the Levites. Shemaiah, with his lineage. Shabatha and Josabad of the heads of the Levites, had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabadi, the son of Aphaz, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. If you recall in, in verse 10, there were days of great thanksgiving that went on and there were prayers. They did, they did the reading of the law that it happened leading up to this, setting everything in order. They wrote it out. They sealed it. We discussed that last week. Baberkiai, the second among his brethren, and Ada, or Abda, the son of Shamariah, the son of Galal, his lineage. The Levites were 284. So remember, all priests were Levites. Not all Levites were priests. They've got other jobs they're being given as well. Then we get to 19. Moreover, the gatekeepers, a curb, Talman, and their brethren who kept the gates were 172. 
So we've got mighty men of valor. We've got Levites. We've got priests in the temple. We've got Levites helping see about the other things in the temple. There's some more of that we're going to see here with some of the storehouses. But now we're specifically told that we have two people that are in charge with their brethren. There are 172 of them. And their job? Gatekeepers. Why do you need gatekeepers? Especially 172 of them. What's the gatekeeper doing? This isn't a trick question. Oh, you had to go there. Yes, he keeps the balloons from floating over your territory. I wish we had some gatekeepers. You're right. They're the guys with the watch. You need the gates open most of the time because people have to come and go. All those people that we've just been listed, these now we're getting up into the thousands of people who have these very specific roles in the city. Because they're in the city doing these things, what are they not doing? They're not in those surrounding communities farming, which means we've got to get food in for those people. There is a gate on this map specifically labeled Dung Gate, which means there's stuff having to leave the city that has to get hauled out. Most of the time, especially during the daylight hours when you can see, they didn't have any night vision goggles, Lewis. You need the gates open. You need the city to be able to function. You need to be able to do things, right? This is the whole idea of why, well, it's why places like North Korea struggle. You can't close yourself off from the rest of the world and function like the rest of the world. People need to be able to come and go. But you also need to be able to trust the people are coming and going. And that's the gatekeeper's job. Yeah, come on in, go. And hey, if it's one guy, even if he's supposedly from your enemy, that may not be as big a deal. But when a hundred of them ride up, you might want to know about that. You might want to, I don't know, close the gate and see what's going on. Maybe get the mighty men of value to come down there and check it out before you decide to let everything happen. So we're specifically told here that there were 172 folks and their whole job, keeping those gates and watching them. Oh, and all those big timbers that we had to get special permission from the king to get to begin with, and then we had to build these things. The whole point is they're not light. <laughs> right, Glenn? So opening and closing those gates takes a little bit of effort. So you need some, somebody watching. They don't swing quite like these doors, which, you know, Paul does an awesome job of. As soon as we're done, the doors are open. If y'all have ever noticed that, it's usually because I'll see Paul. I was helping this morning outside, and all of a sudden there's Paul. He's got all the doors ready. Service is over. You can get through, right? They didn't have these. I don't know. Maybe they did have nice hinges, but comparatively, they're way bigger and heavier to swing. It's much harder. And the rest of Israel, and the, we're in 20, and the rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were all in the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance, which I find interesting because it says everyone in his inheritance, and if I'm not mistaken, the Levites didn't have a land inheritance. I'm going to skip that for now. I'm sure James can explain it for you later. In fact, I want you to ask him and get him to explain that in detail uh, next week. 21 is interesting. But the Nephilim dwelt in Ophel and Zeha and Jishba were over the, and, and Zeha and Jephtha, so those are two people, were over the Nephilim. Who were the Nethim? Or Neth, I don't know how to pronounce it right. Nethim. You remember who they were? So they were the servants and they performed the lowest menial service about the ancient Jewish tabernacle and then later the temple. Okay, so this was the name given to the temple assistants in ancient uh, Jerusalem 
The term was applied originally in the book of Joshua to the Gibeonites. Later in the book of Ezra, they are counted alongside uh, Avadi Shaloma. It's likely that the Nephilim descendants were not Israelites. It took me a minute, but I thought about it. I can't prove this, but then that made sense. If these are doing the lowest, most menial tasks in the temple, that probably required them to do a lot of things that would have made the other Levites and others in the temple ceremonially unclean. So the more I thought about it, this actually makes sense that it would be useful to have servants around who could do work that perhaps you could not. But that's who these people were. Now, it says that they dwelt in uh, Ophiel. If I got this right, that is actually the area between the old city of David, which again is this part of the city, this part of the city, and the temple. So it would have actually been like right in here. Would have been the part of the city where they were inhabiting and where they were living. 22. And also the overseers of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani. His lineage goes forth here. We get to 23. I thought this was interesting. For it was the king's command. Nehemiah is the governor. For it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers. A quota day by day. Pathaliah, the son of Meshezebel, of the children of Zarah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. So we know that Nehemiah was the governor, but there's also a deputy there, uh, specifically on behalf of the, of the king, for matters concerning the people. 25. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in, and there's a whole lot of villages lifted, listed here. And all the way through the end of the chapter, right? We get to 31, we read that also the children of Benjamin, that there's, they're in these areas. Now, I tried to do some research on this to figure out, well, how close, right? Because you've got the mighty men of valor that are right there in your nice fortified, gated city that you've just rebuilt. So that's a nice place. But how far are the families? Because we said they cast lots, right? There's a tenth of them that are there in the town helping protect Jerusalem, overseeing the operations, the administrations of the city. And so I tried to go through, I'm not going to say I did it successfully, but I tried to go through and do some research on a bunch of these names about where were these. And if we go back to, let's see, do I have a good, I don't know if I have a map that shows this well. It's probably, it's way too broad. I didn't, I didn't put one in here. But if you, if you think about where Jerusalem sits, this is basically cities scattered throughout what was Judah, the southern kingdom. And the southern bits of what was um, the northern kingdom, right? So one of these cities that's mentioned I thought was interesting is actually on the other side of the Dead Sea. So you have to kind of go north of Jerusalem and up over the, the, the north end of the Dead Sea to get over there and get to it. Some of them are down on the southern end of the Dead Sea. Uh, this listing here for the, um, uh, where is it, uh, 35, 
in Lod, Ono, and the Valley of the Craftsmen. The Valley of the Craftsmen was off to the east, almost to the Mediterranean. Uh, Lod, uh, outside Lod, this Valley of the Craftsmen, um, that one was kind of interesting because apparently it was this valley that had a lot of copper mines, which is why it was the Valley of the Craftsmen. Well, because you had a lot of copper mines, you had other craftsmen you need to be able to extract the ore, like uh, a lot of folks that were doing timber work because you need charcoal to make the fire to melt the copper, to smelt the copper. And so, but you're going almost to the Mediterranean to the east. You're going to the other side of the Dead Sea. I mean, excuse me, to the west. You're going almost to the Dead Sea. To the east, you're going all the way down to the southern end. You're going slightly up to the north. This is a pretty good size area. Now, this all still easily fits more or less in kind of like North Alabama in the general area because we've got to remember we're used to long distances here compared to, to there. But they're, they're spread out. They're spread out. They're in, they're in the surrounding areas. They're basically occupying more or less what was Judah of old um, before the, the captivity and at least the southern portions of the northern kingdom as well. Let's get into chapter 12. We'll see if we make it. We got maybe 10 minutes, I think. Chapter 12 starts with the priests and the Levites. Now, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of another long list, and Jeshua, Shira, Shaman, Ezra, a number of different names. These all came up. These were the heads. So all this listing in 1 through 6, these were the heads of the priest and their brethren in the days of Jeshua. Moreover, the Levites were Jeshua, Veniel, a number of others, who led the thanksgiving psalms, he and his brethren. So this is the second time we've seen this mentioned, that there were all of these um, dedications, there were days of prayers and readings that went on, and he's specifically calling out, these were the ones that helped lead um, all of those prayers and the thanksgiving psalms, he and his brethren. And it's interesting that they're called out that they were Levites, and these thanksgivings and things that were happening were not specifically in the temple, because that would have required the priests. Starting in 10, we get a lineage that talks about Jeshua, Bahat, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim begot Eshlaba, Elishib, Elishib begot Joadah, begot Jonathan, Jonathan begot Jadua. 12. Now in the days of Jehoiakim, the priests and the heads of the father's house were of several different families of Ezra. We read several more. And we start seeing these, these various lineages that are in the priest and who's actually going on and who's taking care of all this. What's interesting to me is when you get down to verse 22, we read that during the reign of Darius the Persian, the record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been head of their father's house in the days of Elshabib, Joadiah, Jonathan, and Jadua. 
the sons of Levi, the heads of their father's house, until the days of Jonathan, the son of El Shaib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. Okay? What I found interesting about this in 22 is who's listed as the king that sent Nehemiah? You remember? Way back at the beginning? Hmm? No. Artaxerxes. But now we're getting history that includes during the reign of Darius. So we're making reference to a slightly different period here. And the fact that these records were kept of who these families were and who was taking care of all this. And the heads of the Levites were... Okay. So part of what we're getting into here, as part of all this Thanksgiving that's being listed here, is we're getting ready for this dedication of the wall. So they've had, if you think about this in order, we've kind of had this break because we started talking about some accounting and bookkeeping, some administrative stuff that's going on in the city. But if you kind of put in context the narrative of the story, They've had all this Thanksgiving, and we're still getting to list the people who were helping with all that Thanksgiving. Remember, then they reread the law, and they went through that. Then they made this, this oath um, that, they, that they put together, this pledge that they sealed that took place. And that's happened. We kind of had this weird interlude in 11. I say weird, but we had this portion where now we're going through all these families who are actually there and who's staying. But when we get into 12... There's two things, and I should have pointed this out. There's a little bit of a structural change in how things are listed. <laughs> you have less of giving the full family tree and a lot more naming the people that are involved um, specifically. And the heads of the Levites were, with their brothers across from them, to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group, according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Drop down in about the uh, bottom part of 25. Gatekeepers keeping the watch at the storerooms of the gates. We have them mentioned as well. These lived in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, in the days of Nehemiah the governor and of Ezra the priest, the scribe. So we still have all these listings of exactly what's going on. And when we get to 27 is where we start with the actual dedication of the wall. Now the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. The sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nephthalites, from the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba, and I missed that, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the walls. So these Nephthalites, um, there was a village of Judah uh, and its inhabitants that lies about three miles south of Jerusalem. And three miles south of Jerusalem. 
Sorry, I just realized that the source where I got this from wrote that sentence in a really weird way. <laughs> but we're talking, it's about three to six miles south of Jerusalem is where you find this village in this area. And it turns out that that's where the singers had gone um, and were living. So I brought the leaders of Judah up to the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right on the wall towards the refuge gate, the refuge gate. Dungate, down there at the bottom. And after them, with Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, alright, he sent in a whole bunch of folks here. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, in 35. The son of Shemaiah. All these folks, he gets to 36. And his brethren. So this is a large group that he's sending. And basically what happens is... He divides everyone up. Ezra the scribe went before them, 37, by the fountain gate in front of them. They went up the stairs to the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David as far as the water gate eastward. So they're basically creating two groups that are going around the city up towards the temple. 38. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way and was behind them with half of the pe- and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim above the old gate above the fish gate the tower of Haniel the tower of hundreds as far as the sheep gate and they stopped by the gate of the prison So the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God likewise I and the half of the rulers with me, and the priests, Elikim, Masai, Benjamin, Micaiah, Elinoi, Zechariah, and Hanai, with trumpets, also a bunch of other folks who were the singers sang loudly with Jezariah, the director. Interesting, you want proof that singing should be done in an orderly fashion? Add a director for the choir. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. I think it's interesting that they refer to it as the joy of Jerusalem that was heard afar off because we know they had neighbors that were not happy about what was happening in Jerusalem, at least some of the neighboring providences. The chapter ends with uh, some temple responsibilities. And at that same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them from the fields, from the cities, the portion specified by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah rejoicing, the priests, the Levites who ministered, both the singers, the gatekeepers kept in charge. And it's just, so it's just interesting that what we find is a city that's being attacked at the beginning of the book, a city that's in kind of disorder. The temple's there. They're trying to restore temple worship. It's going on. And by the end of the book, what do we find? We find holy, organized worship, people that are now rejuvenated and glad about what's happening, even though that means a tenth of their people are now living 
in the city. And we see that a man who got bad news that looks like he sat down to have a pity party put a plan in place. And with God's help, we now see Jerusalem restored to at least a portion of what it had been in the past. And I'm already way past the bell, so I appreciate your attention. James will be back next week. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.